Hey everyone, and welcome to the Naturopathic Times. I'm your host, Katerina Meister, and as always, I am joined by my wonderful co-host, Stephanie Yakapidia. Hi everyone. Today we're recording virtually over Zoom all the way from San Diego to Seattle. Today's guest is a phenomenal recognized leader and pioneer in naturopathic medicine. Additionally, he is an author, speaker, teacher, and researcher, specifically in integrative therapies for cancer and treatment of chronic disease. Please welcome our guest, Dr. Paul Anderson. Thanks for having me. So we really missed hearing your voice this summer with everyone studying for their licensing exams. Katerina and I took them last summer and we used your materials and swear by them. (laughs) (laughs) So we had to have you on here. I get into people's heads, I think. Yeah. Yeah. So how have you been? You know, (laughs) um, it's it was interesting because I I teach and and travel a lot to teach etc. So when COVID and and uh, you know travel lockdowns and stuff started to happen, I had this fantasy that I would have all this extra time because I'm doing a lot of online teaching and stuff. And because of the crossover with the research I did with uh, vitamin C and other stuff for cancer, and then the Chinese doing vitamin C with COVID in the hospital, it's like the Literally two days after our, we couldn't travel anymore and I, we were pretty much stuck at home, I got uh, a big international group, the ISOM, wanted me to do a physician update for hospital vitamin C. And we had like 6,000 people from around the world on, on that uh teaching call. And then that just snowballed. So I've been doing interviews and uh, and other and my regular teaching job and, and all of that uh, nonstop. I, you know, I'm probably somewhere between 30 and 40, maybe 50 interviews at this point in the last months. It's been good because some have been, uh, you know, a lot more public things where it's not naturopathic oriented, um, whether it's like to professionals, that one that was around the world about vitamin C and stuff was all kinds of doctors, uh, nurses, etc. Um, you know, I did uh, Gabby Reese's podcast about nutrients for immune health and, and a bunch of others. So it's kind of you know, getting nature paths a little bit further out there. It's been a lot of fun. Um, done some done a fair number with, you know, not family stuff, I guess I would call it, you know. Um, And then in the middle of it, I do a weekly podcast of my own and I do a monthly CE webinar for docs. And so, yeah, I, I, uh, I, I'm very busy. So I've been very busy, but yeah. You have a really unique childhood is what we realized. And your father was an ophthalmologist and your mother was a nurse was it at all daunting? Were you expected to go to medical school? It was an interesting childhood in that respect because most of my, not most, but a majority of my parents' friends were doctors or nurses. So I grew up around a lot of medical people. And uh, the one thing, my, my folks were never big into pushing us towards a profession. They said you should find whatever it is that you you know, that you gravitate to. Honestly, the thing that attracted me to naturopathic medicine was I kind of knew conceptually about it because of the school in Portland, both good and bad from that. But also um, I met and I started to take my older children who are 
you know, grown up adults now. The oldest two, though, when they were little, uh, both had chronic, you know, like kid stuff, you know, that goes on and they would just get antibiotics or whatever. And it was getting frustrating. And my mom actually said, you know, I know this naturopathic doctor, you should talk to him about the kids. And I thought, oh, God, didn't like blow it off. I was pretty open minded. And I thought, well, the kids are having a bad enough time. I'd, I'd like to see if this person could help, you know, because I, I had done some reading around natural stuff. My mom, uh, the nurse, was really into natural things from like the 50s on. So she was very well educated about natural medicine, which was really unusual for allopathically minded people to even be open to it. Yeah. So they, mom was, mom was really far ahead of her time. Uh, and there is, there's a lot of reasons for that, but, um, but she was super educated about it. So no, I kind of grew up around these ideas. And then when I went to this, this doctor, um, took the, we took the kids there, they started to get better, you know, and I was like, oh, wow. You know, and I, I knew I was, uh, scientifically trained enough at that point. I knew enough human biology and biochemistry and stuff that I knew when he was talking to me, he was super well informed about medicine. And the thing that impressed me was he would flip right from, well, this is why the body works this way and what their problem is to, but this is another way of dealing with it that doesn't involve, you know, maybe a drug or surgery or whatever. And he could explain them both at the same time. And honestly, it was being with, with him that, uh, I, I started thinking, I could actually do this kind of mess. And like, this is, I don't think I'd ever get bored being a doctor like this. When I see that people are getting the short end of the deal health wise, uh, just because we're following rules, I can't, uh, I can't deal with that. That's not, uh, that's not where I come from. Yeah. Uh, so, so I'm just pragmatic in that way. And, and naturopathy, I, what, what I could see back then, even when I started looking in the really early eighties, I thought, you know, the, the, and in Oregon, people sometimes don't realize this. Now, Oregon at that time had the broadest scope of practice anywhere. And then Arizona moved into being a little bit different. Uh, so they both had the best scopes. Uh, and Washington had almost no scope and California had no licensing. And I mean, no, there were very few states licensed. And there was, there was literally like 360 nature paths in the U.S. That's crazy. Yeah. It's shocking that you found it, honestly. It was a totally different world. If I wouldn't have grown up in the Portland area, I probably would have never found it because it was literally, you know, local to me. Um, so, so it was really like, but back then I, I looked at the practice, you know, the law and I thought, well, gosh, they can do almost everything a primary care doctor does. And I could probably treat people mm -hmm. and be innovative at the same time. And that's actually what, you know, that in this, uh, original doctor that we saw who was just so smart and, you know, knew so much about stuff. Yeah. Do you think that um, people's opinions of naturopathic medicine have changed dramatically from the 90s and when you were just graduating? Well, I think definitely with respect to just the big picture, there's there's no longer, you know, 400 of us. Uh, there's a lot of us yeah. and there's more schools and all that. And there's more licensing. Mm -hmm. So I think on the macro level, it's, it's gotten better. Um, you know, what I learned really quickly when I was in practice in the, in the old days, um, 
as far as other doctors go, you make relationships one doctor to doctor at a time. So it was often I would refer somebody to a specialist and they would see that I did the appropriate stuff. And, you know, there was only two answers that would come back. One was, uh, because you're a naturopath, we don't trust anything you do just because, or the other was, gee, you seem like a reasonable person who's doing the right thing for their patients. And, uh, you know, in, in the days when I was practicing in Oregon, the people who were in category two who were reciprocal, they became people that I referred to constantly. And we built really great relationships in that respect. I think that part, as far as doctor to doctor has never changed. Um, there's a little bit more open mindedness, you know, but I think you, and here's why I'm saying this now that I do things sort of on like with government and on the national or international stage or whatever, there's still a fairly large amount of uh, just prejudicial ideas about what a nature path is or isn't. And so it's, um, it's getting better, but like we're also on a bigger stage sometimes and there's still a lot of uh, there's a lot of the CE, you know, big CE events where they prefer not to have nature paths if they can avoid it. Mm. Um, there's still a lot of physicians uh, who are into integrative medicine who will not trust naturopathic doctors. Um, and and mm -hmm. I've you know, and, and and I'm not saying that to be a downer. I'm just saying that because I have conversations with these people and I've literally had this same conversation repeatedly for the last 25 years, um, a medical doctor who's either getting into functional medicine or has been in a while. And they will say, you know, the first time I saw that you were on the docket to speak at this conference, and I've spoken a lot of allopathically oriented conferences, they, they said, you know, I almost walked out because of that. What is a nature path going to teach me? Mm. And then, they said uh, they would always say, well, and then about 10 minutes into you talking, I realized you were actually more science based than anyone else who was teaching at the thing. So that ke that kept me in the room. And then I realized you actually knew something, you know, <laughs> and, and then that sort of wins them over, you know. So, yeah. Yeah. So part of wearing myself out traveling around the world and speaking has just been more just to say our profession has something to offer. We're not all, you know, crazy and don't know anything and all that stuff. And you, you know, we, we, we could all, we should all work together. Exactly. And, but it's still, it's like, you know, it's one person at a time and it's one event at a time or whatever. I, I think mm -hmm. we're just a bigger, we're, we're, we're less amorphous than we used to be back when there was hundreds of us. So I think that's, I think that's, it's a good trend. It's a slow turning ship, but it just needs a lot of us to do good work and share the good work we're doing in the, and you build them. Yeah. yeah. That kind of leads into like some of the things that we're going to talk about with you is people don't understand what's the benefit of having a naturopathic doctor on their healthcare team. And I think just talking about your past. So your first five years out of practice, you did general practice. And then the next 15 years, your practice turned into advanced chronic illness and cancer therapies. First of all, how did your practice turn into that? What attracted this type of patient? And then is naturopathic medicine also for the healthy average patient? Yeah. So, and I, I know I've probably either said or written those, those numbers of years, but I'll just tell you the real the real number of years. 
I started completely with the idea that I was going to be a family doctor. I was going to see from children to old folks and, um, and do general practice. Uh, and that was what I had in my mind when I left school. Um, and in partly in order to, um, do that, I, using some of my family contacts, I did uh, two years of uh, preceptoring in emergency rooms. I did two years uh, preceptoring in uh, free clinics with medical doctors, and I did a, a lot of surgery and injection preceptoring. So I was, I had a lot of experience that you wouldn't normally get very easily going to an ND program. And I did that specifically so I'd be very well-rounded and, you know, be able to play both sides. The practice attracted a lot of families, kids, and, you know, all that stuff. And, and I did, I had a lot of general wellness people back then too, but really it wasn't five years. It was really a year and a half into being a general practitioner. Um, and what happens mm -hmm. is as soon as you start seeing people who are you know, pretty bad cancer cases and, uh, and chronic illness, they know all the other people with those problems. And then all of a sudden my practice shifted and became less and less and less a family practice and more. So it was really, it wasn't five years. It was like a year and a half. And by, by the fifth year, um, I was still seeing some of my family practice people, but it was mostly cancer and chronic illness. So um, that was the real shift, though. It was it was not that I sat down and made a business plan that I'm going to target these people. It was I helped a couple of them. And then it was like, you know, and that's who that's who I saw. So my practice literally mm -hmm. from then on almost never had a healthy person in it. So do most people come in in your practice with cancer patients, do most people come in when they're at stage four or do you see all stages? So that's been a really nice evolution. Um, 20 plus years ago, it was all uh, like I can count two people in the, in the old days who, who don't follow what I'm about to say. Uh, 20 plus years ago, Literally, the and they'll still say this sometimes, but the oncologist would say, if you go see anybody else, like a naturopath, I will fire you as a patient and I won't treat your cancer. Wow. And so people would come to me scared to death and I would just say, you know, if you, it's your it's it's your life. If you want to work with me, you can, and you don't have to tell them if if they're going to be that way about it. And back then, there there it was they had very closed ranks, and and almost no oncologist would break ranks. So what would happen is we tended to only get people where the oncologist said, "Yeah, go try something else," because I have nothing for you. So we it sort of worked backwards from only stage four really bad cancers, and then about. 10 years ago, I went from two people who were, you know, prevention or early stage cancer, you know, in the previous 10, 15 years to then a few more would come for preventive reasons. Or they'd say, you know, I have this really like a stage one or two prostate or breast cancer or something. And what can we do to work with the stuff I'm doing? And that's the part that's grown in the last number of years. It's there's still a lot of uh, medical bigotry about uh, integrative oncology generally, but naturopathic oncology specifically. And that's literally where you have to have relationships, you know, with people because they just because we're a little more accepted and we have our own 
you know, specialty and stuff for oncology. That doesn't mean that uh, the oncology world has uh, got open arms for us. They don't. Right. Would you say that's the number one thing that people misinterpret about integrative cancer therapy, that it's only for stage four? You know, I, I think, I mean, I think what I've seen that's been a very pleasant uh, shift is that idea has been changing. And it's it's not because the oncologists are saying, yeah, you should go get some preventive care. It's because patients are, are educated and they're saying, you know, I there's nothing wrong with the allopathic oncology world, but it's not the whole world for cancer care. So it's really that patients are now feeling more comfortable going outside of what the one doctor says, and they realize that they, they need as many inputs as they can. Um, so it's really patient driven, which is great because that's what you want is you want patients who are interested in what you're doing. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what a average treatment plan looks like for, um, Cancer patients, you have some state-of-the-art therapies, including hyperbaric oxygen. You do IV vitamin C and hyperthermia therapies. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's uh, a lot of those sort of high intervention things are, again, it's sort of like the other stuff I was telling you about with this movement of my practice away from general practice to oncology and chronic illness because we were technically able to do those things in our clinic, we also became more of a higher level intervention place to go. So we did because most other clinics can't do all that stuff or it's very, it's more rare. Mm -hmm. So it's not that we didn't do other things. It's just, that was sort of, we, we could do that stuff and it was one of the few places you could. Um, all of those things have a place. They're just tools. Um, and they have a place all the way across a cancer spectrum. But really, um, because I and, and my associates saw people at all levels of cancer, one of the things that we try and get across to people is all of the kind of high-tech cool things that can be done have a place, but you have to have a base upon which to um, uh, do your other therapies, whether they're oral supplements or herbs or whatever, or these big, you know, IV or hyperbaric and stuff. And the base really turns out, and this is something I kind of knew it amorphously, but looking backwards, I saw that the most successful patients had some things in common, and there was three really big foundational things. Uh, so the first was food, uh, being diet and how it's put together and how clean the food is, all that stuff. So what you're feeding yourself. Um, the next uh, is uh, what I call muscle, uh, just to remember it. But the more muscle activity you have and the less fat activity metabolically, the more resistant you are to chronic illness and cancer. So it was trying to get the body moving and working to the degree it can. And then the, the third foundational part was I call brain, which includes not just, you know, kind of your uh, your internal thoughts about things, but also just how are you dealing with this diagnosis you have? Um, but also what, what inputs are you taking in? Is it all really negative people or negative messages or is, is it, you know, working on being empowering and that sort of stuff. So regardless of what we did with people, we did try to make sure that they either through other providers or us, they were dealing with those. Cause what I literally found was you can do, all the same other treatments 
But if those things aren't being worked mm-hmm. on, it's like a house with no foundation. They just sort of don't stick. Yeah. And, and if, um, you know, because people would say, well, you know, what do I do if I can't, you know, I can't afford to do these different things. It's like everybody can do the foundational mm-hmm. things. We all have to eat and mm-hmm. eat and drink. We, yeah. we all have a brain we can work on and we can all get up and walk around or do something, you know, so there's those things we're doing anyway, better or worse. So the foundations, we can focus on those. And then maybe, you know, maybe there is like, you know, one group of herbs you can focus or there's something else. Right. So it, it, um, that became extremely important. And, and like in, um, the first, uh, oncology book that Mark and I wrote, um, right over here outside the box. Um, it it was, it was a lot, we talked a lot, we talked a bit about mind body and stuff, but a lot of it was about, you know, honoring traditional oncology in the allopathic world that, you know, it's not good or bad. It's a tool, right? Right. Um, we're not against that, but there's this whole other world of oncology that we want to enlighten people to. And so, that was sort of the way that, you know, both Mark and I had always practiced and we decided we put it in a book to let patients know that they had options and there were things they could, you know, they could work on. So that that's kind of, so there was really rarely a protocol that was standardized to a cancer patient. I mean, you can have two people with the exact same cancer, same gender, same age, and their body has totally different vitality and ability to deal with treatments. And also, I mean, sometimes people are like, look, I'm not worried about the cancer. I just want to have an extremely good quality of life and, and be as engaged and healthy as I can. I, you know, the cancer, whatever, that's a whole, you know, I mean, there's crossover, but that's a different bent from someone saying, uh, I have an aggressive cancer and I want to do, I want to at least try everything I can to push back on the cancer kind of, you know, it's different, you know, and and that's sort of the beauty of what we do is you, you know, you don't have to just do one thing. It's, you know, first it's what the patient really wants. Right. And, and what I always would tell people, as long, as long as what you want is not dangerous to you or a bad idea, you know, or whatever, um, I want to support what you want to get out of this. And then from there, we, we work as a team to say, you know, this is what we're going to do. Um, and that's much more rewarding on the doctor side and, and, and much more, uh, it's positive outcome on the patient side if you're doing that. So it sounds like at the base of every plan, even though every plan is individualized, you want to strengthen a patient's vitality. There has to be oh, yeah. a little bit of that to work with. Yeah. And I think yeah. those foundational things, that's really, you know, that's what they're going after. I mean, on on some level, they're shifting your biochemistry and all of that stuff, but really it's the the vitality of the human you're treating makes all the difference in what any other therapy is going to do. Can you see that in each patient, like the vis? So the the idea of uh, the vis, uh, I, what I what I tend to do is say your personal vitality or something to make it personalized, and then then you're not uh, translating Latin for people and stuff like that. Um, but most people get the idea that there is this sort of uh, you know vitality and and reserve that your body has and. I just start real, like you said about teaching board reviews, I, I start simple. I mean, I break it down and figure if, if almost everybody can understand this, 
they can ask more questions to clarify, but it's like that that's what it is, you know, and if they've been to say uh, an acupuncture, uh, you know, Asian medicine provider or something, I'll say, you know, they'll talk about chi or they'll talk about whatever. It's sort of that idea that there's this thing about us that is more than just the sum total of our physiology and our biochemistry, but it's part of it. Um, and, and I, and, and this, this comes up a lot in the question. Patients will say, well, what, uh, you know, what's your success rate with stage four colon cancer? And, um, and what I would, you know, and it became a little easier after we did all the research and stuff. Cause I could quote, <laughs> you know, stuff, but, um, what I would always say to people is, well, it, there isn't a number. I can't give you, you know, stats or whatever, because, and I would just say, I, if I take the last five colon cancer patients, I have, there's five different outcomes and it's because your immune system and your vitality and your functionality is five different people. And so what we do works with that part of you primarily. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's, a big part of the difference. And the other thing is like where, you know, where their headspace is at. A lot of people, um, you know, are at a place where everything's firing the right direction to resonate with whatever we're doing. Other people, not so much, you know, and it's, you know, that, that, that happens. And just because mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if it'll come up later, this is a good segue for it. You may not want to know this, but um, in the when we started the oncology research center, and then I came in shortly after it was started to handle the IV and interventional parts uh, because they realized that that was a real hard thing to do. <laughs> and so I I had done that for a long time. The thing we thought sort of, you know, we, we were hoping, well, now we're going to keep track of patients better than we would in private practice because it's research. Um, we thought, well, maybe what we'll see is that, um, and we did like IV vitamin C is one of many, many things that we did intravenously. Uh, there was a lot of innovation of intravenous therapies that then the FDA took away and stuff, but because they worked. Uh, so, so there was a lot of innovation that my group did. Um, but but let's say it was vitamin C or let's say it was uh, artesanate, the malaria drug, or let's say it was curcumin. We were looking and saying maybe what we'll see is, you know, um, colon cancer and prostate cancer will do really well. And then maybe uh, pancreatic cancer won't or whatever. And we started looking and they only gave the my group, the IV group, uh, stage four patients. So that's. The reason being is if you make a change in a stage four patient, it's very obvious. You make a change in a stage one patient, it's great for the patient, but it's real hard to track from a research point of view. It, it was totally a research thing, which was fine. It was just, man, I got all the really bad patients. Um, and, and really, honestly, the innovations that came out of that, regardless of whether they were taken away or not, wouldn't have happened if I would not have had that level of patient challenge because every patient where things mm -hmm. weren't working on makes you look to what else can we do or what else is out there. Um, but, but the thing that happened that I was then a later to share with patients is the, the thing we didn't see was, oh, it's breast cancer does well here or pancreatic does well here or doesn't do well here. It was this kind of patient does well. 
agnostic of the cancer type they had. Now, there were a few trends that I saw that was, you know, someone comes in with a hematologic cancer, you know, bone marrow, blood, that sort of thing, uh, leukemias, lymphomas, et cetera. Um, we would tend to start in a different place with that group just from what we saw over time uh, versus maybe some other type of cancer. But beyond that, there wasn't like, oh, this is a slam dunk for this kind of cancer every time. Uh, so, and that really goes back to it's, you know, when you're sitting across from the person and they have X cancer, you inform it with, well, we tend to do better with this direction, but the direction is based on your vitality and how your body's going to work with it. Uh, and so we make informed choices, but then we tell you this is your body can always have a new idea. Yeah. I feel like that relates to, um, you make up, you have a post on your Instagram about fear and cancer and chronic illness disease. And, you know, a lot of these emotions, fear, negativity, and anger, are some of the most disease promoting forces that you've seen. And how do you feel like those emotions relate to someone's vitality? Oh yeah. I mean, I, th I think that they're, they're inextricably combined. Um, and honestly, the reason that uh, I wrote the follow-up book uh, to Outside the Box was as I had the time from when we finished writing that in 2017 and it came out in 2018 and, and looking and working with patients and really taking this big macro step back and saying, what have I learned in the last 30 years? And, you know, what have I seen as trends and what do I see as important? The part because the, the outside the box was very kind of intervention oriented, you know, because people, our goal was to say, you know, if you're going to spend resources and your time and whatever, start here with natural therapies, you know, don't maybe go out to the periphery uh, first and, and to get help people and their doctors make decisions. But the thing that I saw that was, um, it was a whole separate book. So we only dealt with it a little bit and that was, the the mental emotional state that you are in when you're dealing with any chronic disease, whether it's cancer, autoimmunity, fibromyalgia, whatever, that is completely tied together with your um, uh, with your vitality and your ability to you know not just to fight back to but to deal with the disease and and so the the next book which is just can, it's called cancer, and then it's uh, the journey from diagnosis to empowerment. It comes out in uh, our goal is October. It's nice because it's the it's like the yin and the yang. This is maybe the the yang and the the, the new books the yin. Um, it's agnostic of treatment. It doesn't matter if you're going all allopathic or all nature better. What it doesn't care about that. It's all about you get a you know the diagnosis nobody wants to get. Now you have it. Um, why would it be important that you find a way to deal with that mentally and emotionally? And what is a strategy for dealing with it in a healthy way and getting to being empowered about it versus mm -hmm. uh, afraid and all of those things that you mentioned earlier? And I think that whether because I see this a lot with doctors, too, because I talk to so many doctors, um, fear is the enemy of doing good medicine. 
and fear is the yeah. is the enemy of healing and then whatever mm-hmm. other things you relate you know the, all those great words you said earlier they're the enemy of anything real productive because they they divert your energies mentally physically and emotionally to outside forces that really you can't control and what we can control is us and the way that we're dealing with stuff so um Dealing with those is a huge thing. So if you talk about like foundations, um, and this goes back to just one of those things that I just watched and experienced with people. If, if you can't get beyond, you know, the shock and the anger and the grief over being diagnosed with any bad thing, but especially cancer, you can do a zillion dollars worth of any treatment you want. And it's, your body's going to take you the direction of the fear and the anger and which is not a healing direction, you know? So it doesn't mean you have to like ignore that you have cancer or uh, autoimmunity or whatever, or be, you know, especially happy about it, but it's that you, you have to realize, well, this is a part of my reality, but I am still in control of me and this this doesn't have to do it. And, and the same goes, you know, um, Probably the second biggest group of doctors I deal with after uh, board exam takers uh, <laughs> are are people who've been in practice, you know, under five years, um, and just by the nature of the the overwhelming nature of the responsibility of being a physician, there's a lot of fear about can I step forward and can I do these things, you know, safely and all that stuff because you need to be safe. Um, but by the same token, it's just like a patient being angry or afraid or avoiding. You, you have to um, you have to safely and effectively move treatments forward and be comfortable adding things in, you know, and um, medicine of all kinds has gotten very, you know, a downside of being protocol driven, although protocols are great for what they are. A downside of it is the people who need something innovative, if you're never willing to step outside of that or step outside of the limited stuff you learn in your training, um, you're not going to help very many people, you, you know? It's, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, um, I mean, it was, it was, uh, worth me deconstructing a lot of really painful patient experiences and all that stuff to, to do this next book about the internal journey. But I really felt like that was something that, you know, people need a way to deal with it. And I, and I wrote the book specifically so that it's totally, uh, open, like whatever else you're doing for your cancer. It's great. I'm not telling yeah. people what to do. I do put foundational stuff in. I say, you know, if you're doing chemo, surgery, radiation, all natural, all unnatural, whatever, um, the foundations are the foundations and here's some ideas about them. Uh, so I did put that in and I put a lot of that sort of, you know, philosophical stuff in, but it's really more about whatever you're doing. You've got this bad diagnosis nobody wants and how do you center yourself and you know, work with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point about the mental emotional piece of it. I think people forget that being rooted in like anger and fear takes a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. It's so draining. Mm-hmm. And so then where is the energy going to come from for your body to heal yeah. from a diagnosis like that? If it's yeah. Um, so I have always wanted to know why some people get cancer and why some people don't get cancer. So with the work that you've done, we know that there's a genetic component, 
but how much of it are you finding is genetic and how much of it is due to lifestyle factors? You know, that's, that's, uh, that's the, $10 million question. Um, yeah. You weren't setting yourself up for ultimate truth here, but I'll, I'll give you my ideas um, as I've watched a lot of it. So the first thing I will say, and I actually bring this up in the book with the help of, I, I did, uh, uh, there's two things I did that were from patient experience very directly that I wanted people to be able to relate to a cancer patient um, in, in the book, uh, because uh, although I've treated and seen a lot of patients, I don't have cancer. And so I have to say, these are people, you know, real people. So I interviewed four people who were uh, either the parents of children with cancer or people with cancer. And then through the book, I compare and contrast sort of the, like the most angry uh, against everything, um, not the right place for your brain to be patient I ever had. And then one of the many who were probably the best at evolving into empowerment. And so I contrasted their stories through the book. Um, so one of the things though, that came up uh, with some of the patient interviews that I did was there are younger people who, um, and, and some older people too, who have absolutely no lifestyle reason to get cancer and no known genetic reason they just get cancer. Okay. Now there's probably some deep, dark thing somewhere, but one of the most, um, and a reason I'm, I'm, there's a reason I'm saying this up front. One of the most disturbing and angering things for certain groups of people who have cancer to hear is that it's all avoidable by lifestyle or diet or whatever, because sometimes it's not. And it has nothing mm -hmm. to do with that. And, you know, you, I, I, I have had patients with cancer from two or three months old to 99 years old. And mm -hmm. if you go and you tell uh, the parent of a three-month-old or a four-year-old that there's something that their child did to engender this cancer, it's like, it, that doesn't even make any sense, you know? Now, right. you know, I mean, it's, it's like, no, you know? Uh, so, so I want to say that first though, because it's easy because the bulk I think of cancers could be slowed down or prevented by certain things that we'll talk about next. But I want to make sure I just say out loud, like the, sometimes it is just, there's probably a reason we can't see, or we don't have the technology to know or whatever, but there are people who have done everything right and they still will develop cancer. So that's a group of people mm -hmm. and we need to be, you know, sensitive that, that we don't want to make them feel like, well, you know, gee, I really did work hard and I tried everything and I still mm -hmm. have cancer. Uh, but that being said, um, for a lot of cancers, uh, even if you look at the genetically predetermined ones where there's a high propensity, like uh, BRCA mutations, there are still 40 plus percent of the people with BRCA mutations who don't get cancer. Okay. So it's like the genes are a piece of the puzzle, but they are a, they're a variable player in the puzzle. Mm -hmm. So some of the genetic things like you see in, in childhood cancers, 
they're a bigger player because they literally are born with genes that that not only predispose but but promote the type of cancer that they have so that's that's kind of on the big genetic end of things and then there's things kind of in the middle like brca and some of the other more famous ones that we hear about where it's still the majority but there's still a large percentage that never get cancer that have those genes so then that starts to tell you that there's there's a lot of epigenetic forces that will trigger you know cancer or not and epigenetic forces are everything that affects your body, whether it's the mental emotional state, the vitality state, the diet, the toxins that come in, all that. It's all, it's all of that, right? Um, and then there are cancers that um, are more likely, you know, the epigenetic signaling that triggers the cancer are more likely, you know, diet, lifestyle, toxin related um and and less you know less hardcore genetic so it's a it's a real big uh you know variety and obviously the you know the bottom line if you don't have cancer if you can have things be as clean and low toxin as possible there's there is no non-toxic part of our world anymore there is no you know mm -hmm. way to get away from it but you can work to avoid as much as you can uh if you keep the metabolism towards muscle metabolism and away from fat metabolism a lot of data now that shows that either you don't get cancer as much or if you do have cancer you live longer so i mean that's sort of a no-brainer there's a lot of you know dietary things that we now actually have data to show that are you know good for you um and all that stuff so would you say that it's always time for preventative medicine yeah i mean you and that's the thing that you know people would get a little discouraged about it'd be like well you know now i'm diagnosed with cancer is it worth me making these changes the answer is yes it's never too late to make changes right um mm -hmm. but as far as you know if you if you subtract the the people who develop cancer who there doesn't seem to be any trigger that was there for it. They were doing everything right. If you subtract that group, which is a significant group, um, and you're trying to avoid chronic illness of every kind, including cancer, taking care of the basics, taking care of the foundations, are the that's the place you have to start. Can you do that at home, or what's the benefit of having a naturopathic doctor on your team? The benefit of of what we do, the naturopathic physicians is literally, we are at least trained to think kind of on, on both levels at the same time. So the, uh, the biomedical level of how things work and biochemistry, physiology, pathology, that sort of stuff, but also then, um, the, um, the vital end of the intervention. And so part of what you provide as naturopathic doctor is, is guidance that there might be 50 things that are good and appropriate here, but no human is going to absorb and do 50 things. That's stupid. Mm -hmm. So for you, and and this goes back to you got five people with colon cancer. You might have five different treatment protocols beyond the basics. For patient number one, 
these two or three things are what we really have to put our energy into. And for patient number two, it's going to be number 45 and 50. And, you know, and so the benefit of the naturopathic doctor and their approach is going to be helping you weed through not just what's maybe the most efficacious statistically, but also for you, particularly with your health, the way it is and where you're at with your vitality and all that, what, what's worth us putting resources into. Um, and the other thing is, and, and I, um, you know, I've seen this repeatedly, having somebody from the outside able to give you informed advice to help you sort through the million good things that you could be doing takes the pressure mm -hmm. off of you to try and make those decisions from just sort of, you know, a lot of outside input. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's about guidance, but it's also about the way that we approach, you know, giving the guidance, which, which really winds up being very much one-to-one -one. it's, it's you and you and me making the best we can for, for your particular situation. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much out there. And I feel like a lot of Katerina, what you and I are going to do in the future is synthesize all the information and tell our patients, okay, here's what we know and here's what you can do. So Dr. Anderson, um, when a patient first comes into your clinic and they just researched integrative oncology, how do you explain to them what that is exactly? Well, um, depends if I can draw or not. It's not good drawing either, but uh, but people remember it. Um, you know what I usually do is uh, I'll keep it simple, and I'll, I'll it's a circle um, because that's easy to draw, and I'll say that this is you, okay? Uh, and 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 depending on where they are in the trail of their cancer experience. So I break it into four things. One is primary prevention, which means you, you don't know you have cancer, you don't have cancer, but you don't want to get it right. So that's a different goal, but it's, that's great. We got more people want to do primary prevention. Then the second phase is diagnosis through active treatment. Now that's very different person and needs than a prevention person. But then the third phase is the recovery from active treatment, which is super important for long-term health. And the fourth phase is what we call secondary prevention, where uh, you're in remission, no evidence of disease, and you don't want the, that or another cancer to come back, which is statistically highly probable. So in the third and fourth phases, you're really working against future cancers and, and healing yourself up. So normally I will, uh, and so I don't draw those four circles for each patient because they're in one of those categories. But let's say a person comes in and they're in the second category, they've been diagnosed and they're doing whatever their treatment is. I will draw that circle and I will say there, there is a piece of this that is covered by the standard allopathic oncology approach. And they're often surprised when I say, and that piece is, uh, and it's a small pie wedge is somewhere between five and 15% of your cancer care it comes from the allopathic approach. It's mm -hmm. very high intervention. It's very important. Sometimes it's very necessary, but that's all. And then I'll just point to the rest of the circle and say, what, what happens over here? You know, this is the rest of you. 
and they'll often look and say, oh, I never thought about it that way. And so in somebody getting active cancer care, even if I'm going to do a bunch of anti-cancer treatments that are mine, you know, naturopathically oriented, I always tell a patient up front, I am less interested with your cancer cells than I am in your healthy cells, because most of you is healthy cells. And the way that you live the longest with cancer or go into remission is to keep the healthy cells normal and healthy, and then marginalize the cancer. And so what I tell them is that whole rest of that pie, the other, you know, 90, 85, 90% is literally what we do. And that includes the basics. It includes supporting your immune system, includes balancing your immune system. If they come to me and they're done with chemo or radiation or whatever, and they're in the third phase of recovery, then it's literally, you know, 99% of the circle is integrative naturopathic oncology. And if they come to mm -hmm. us in the fourth phase, secondary prevention, it's still 99% of the circle. I mean, there's, there's very little uh, allopathic intervention for either of those other two. And so people, once they see that, it's like, wow, well, so then what do we do with all this? Well, that, then that opens the conversation about um, making uh, priorities for all the things, because you could, again, do 1,100 things, and that's not going to work. Uh, so you have to prioritize, you know. So you say, well, you in particular have – you know, still a lot of vitality. You have the ability to do a lot of X, Y, and Z. Let's go that direction first. Get another person who's really like they almost died from their chemo or their radiation and they're very weak. You, you're starting in a whole different place because they have a very, you know, sensitive vitality that needs to be, you have to respect that. You can, you know, it's like, I'm sure you guys, you know, read or heard about all the old timers like Lynn Lahr and Tilden and all mm -hmm. those guys. Um, mm -hmm. They all would write about this um, and, and talk about if you take somebody who's extremely frail and, and sick and you push too hard, they don't have healing reactions. They actually have deadly reactions. You kill people doing that. Well, thankfully, we we're smart enough not to do that. But like that's a thing and it's always been a thing. Uh, it's just nowadays uh, we have a lot more sensitive patients because we have a lot of drugs that keep people alive in a in a suppressed state longer. And so we have to be very careful with people that get there. But then I've had people that like they were done with their treatment or they got surgery and it was one and done and they were still super vital. And they, they said, no, I'm, I want to, I'm all about recovery and then prevention. we got a lot you can do, you know, which is cool. You're doing great work. We're in the middle of a pandemic right now. So how do you feel like the pandemic is shaping how you view medicine and how you'll practice medicine in the future? In the shortest way possible, um, I've thought a lot about that, even though I didn't know you were going to ask me that question. Um, starting from the very beginning, when a big part of this presentation to doctors and nurses I did for around the world that had thousands of people tuning in, the very first thing that I did was uh, I didn't technically break in. I went into the Wuhan uh, hospital database and uh, 
and it was only in Mandarin Chinese. And so I extracted their findings, and then I I used an AI program and converted it wow. to English, such as it is. And I was really looking for very specific things like prevention and uh, vitamin C and Chinese medicine and all that stuff. But what I saw in there, if I would have just sat down and said, what would I guess? they would have come upon with these first hundreds of cases that they had because you know for better or worse most asian countries i've worked with like korea and uh and parts of the chinese you know world that that allowed me in and stuff in the past were much more open to what we do okay the last time i was in uh taiwan uh, which is part of the Republic of China. They had a giant hospital, entire floor dedicated just to integrative medicine. We were teaching those doctors and stuff like that. So I knew that they would be a little more broad-minded. But what I saw matched exactly what I would have assumed that a more integrative approach would show. And that is that um, the things that we talk about a lot as far as comorbidities being a problem, one of the big things we ignore a lot in the United States and Canada is uh, comorbid infections because we've been told they're not that big a deal. Well, they are a big deal. Uh, and mm -hmm. they actually started from day one doing assessments of other infections. These people have data on it. Uh, dietary things were in there made total sense. The use uh, and, and their stated use of using vitamin C was two things, either keep you out of the hospital because we only have so many hospital beds. So they literally imported, you know, tons of vitamin C to give people orally or in the hospital, we'll give it to you so you don't die. Um, made total sense to me the way they did that. And then the use of what I call indigenous medicine. In their case, it's Chinese medicine because it's China and that's what they have. But what I have heard from my contacts around the world is it doesn't matter what the indigenous medicine is. If you're in the an area where they do Ayurvedic medicine, whether it's an Asian type of medicine, uh, in Korea, they have traditional Korean medicine, which is almost the same as TCM. Uh, in other parts, they have other indigenous things, Native American things in America or naturopathic approach. The important part of that is it underscored that an integrative approach, which is what we would do, is part and parcel to keeping people either out of the hospital or healing them afterwards. And so it, it, the pandemic brought out a lot of real specific things, and there's a lot of interesting immunobiology and stuff, which is not that mysterious. But mostly it just underscored that what we espouse as a way to do medicine in, in an integrative a whole person manner is actually the best way to keep people as healthy as possible. And, you know, with the pandemic, just like with cancer, some people are going to die. Some people are going to get sick who did everything right. Uh, same thing happens, right? But the majority of people, there are things that are really, really important. And, you know, what they showed from the Chinese data that I borrowed um, was the more of our stuff that they did, and by our stuff, I mean, you know, indigenous medicine and vitamin C and all these other things, the more people survived. And and the big thing that, that, you know, is interesting when you read it and say it out loud is they don't care. They're sort of like a lot of European countries. They don't care uh, about saying we used natural things and drugs together and it was a better outcome. They have they have no dog in the game there, no dog in the hunt. Uh, here in yeah. America, it's, uh, well, we have to prove that these natural things work and all that. And that's, um, 
that's where a lot of the excitement came. So it taught me that. It also taught me because immediately then I was asked to interact with uh, state departments of health. Uh, to get vitamin C into hospitals and stuff. And as soon as I started doing, and, and Ivy League uh, ICUs in Ivy League medical schools and stuff like that, I was talking to all of them. And immediately the politics of medicine in North America started to kick in. And then there were two things. One was, oh, it's a naturopath thing and we can't trust that. Even though it was all based on research and it, it wouldn't matter if, you know, I was whatever. Uh, that was one thing. And then the other thing was, well, this is a little out there. We're not that kind of a hospital or we don't want, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah. And, and so what had to happen mm -hmm. in the hospitals that adopted it is they got a champion who was in the system and, and that's fine. And that publication I did that, that was recently published uh, in its hard copy version um, about hospital use. I did that because I, I speak, I can speak hospital. I know how hospital pharmacies work. I, I work in a hospital part of the year uh, and I, I do IVs and stuff uh, and protocols in hospital for people. So I wrote it so that they could just take that and they could steal it, rip it off and still help their patients. And that's what's happened. So it's great. So the pandemic has added a, it's like been my hobby. Yeah. Yeah. It's great seeing someone like you out in the field, making all of these strides in our medicine, mm -hmm. making our name known in a very succinct way that is also evidence-based and just overall helping to spread our message. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the whole goal. And there's a lot of other folks doing it in our profession. I'm sure you're going to try and interview all them too. So that'll be, uh, that'll be good. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Anderson, for joining us today and sharing your story. Be on the lookout for Dr. Anderson's new book, Cancer, The Journey from Diagnosis to Empowerment, in stores this October. It'll also be available on Kindle and as an audio version. All of his books are listed on www.dracbooks.com, and that is D-R-A-Books.com. You can also find Dr. Anderson online at www.consultdranderson.com, and that is C-O-N-S-U-L-T. D-R-A-N-D-E-R-S-O-N.com or online at Dr. A Online on Instagram and Facebook. And before we close the show, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, comment, rate, review, and most of all, share it with someone you know. That's all we got for you guys today. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>